My family means a tremendous amount to me. And I love those times. In fact, this weekend is one of those times where we just have certain family traditions. We all have different traditions, things that we, we repeat year in and year out. And, and this weekend is pumpkin weekend. We go to the pumpkin patch, we take the kids and we spend some time we, and we just do a lot of kind of fun fall stuff. And we've done this just every year and, and the kids look forward to it. And uh, the big kids look forward to it. But you know, of all the words that God chose to use for the church, one of the most precious to me is family. Yeah, we're a church. We're the assembly. We're His people. You could go on and on with different synonyms for the church, but family is one that God chose for us and and describes us, and I think rightly so. While the pastoral letters of Paul deal with church organization, if the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, 1 Timothy 1.5, then wonky doctrines must be rejected. If the goal of our instruction is love, we must seek sound biblical doctrine for the sake of our loved ones, for the sake of our family, that we speak truth and we are honest with each other and we walk in the light together, and that's what the Word of God does. And there's so much deception in the world that we ought not be surprised when that deception creeps into the church. You know, it's kind of like raising my kids and and they would come home from school with something, with a deception, a lie, a a mistruth. And we would have to correct that lovingly and gently. And so much of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus is corrective and teaching Timothy and Titus how to be corrective within the church body, within the family. And because correction takes place in the family, Paul now encourages Timothy in the way he handles those corrections. He's already told him to stand strong against heresies, and he's given him different ways to do that, many warnings for it. But now we come into chapter 5, and the teaching is, okay, so how do you bring this to the family of God? And Paul's going to give Timothy now instruction, and us by way of, of understanding here, instruction on how do we deal with each other? How do we relate to family. Paul's going to go through four different groups that we'll look at tonight. And we're going to spill into chapter 6, just a couple of verses in. But four groups. You could say there are five. We already dealt with one of those groups on Sunday. That's the rich and those who want to get rich. So they're kind of a group unto themselves. But there are four specifically that Paul's going to deal with in this chapter. And the first one, Paul's going to talk to Timothy now about relating to the entire fellowship. So more of a a general relating, relating to the fellowship, both young and old. But start back in verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul said, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Remember, the salvation he's talking about here in the context is you will save yourself and others from heresy. He's not saying that by doing these things you can work your salvation into heaven. No, he's saying as you do this, as you teach truth, you're going to save yourself, Timothy, and you're going to save others from the very heresy that I'm warning you about. But as he continues on, what happens when an older Christian 
an older brother, an older saint, conflicts with the teaching of God's Word, then what is this young man, Timothy, supposed to do? Verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. The word rebuke is only used in this place in the entire Bible. It's the only time we see this word. There's another translation. You'll see the word rebuke in English. That's a different word. It, that, that word tends to be admonish or charge or encourage. But in this case, the one use of this word for rebuke is literally to strike at. Don't strike at an older brother. Don't strike at an older man, Paul tells Timothy, because if you strike at, you're going to strike out. Don't go swinging the bat. In relationships, Paul says, Timothy, I want you to deny the impulse to lash out. Anybody ever ever have that impulse with somebody in your life? You just want to clock them over the head. It's especially difficult when, and I recall... Early on, especially in my ministry, when I was a younger man, and I would have to bring correction to someone older than me, it was the most uncomfortable, difficult thing I'd ever had to do. And and to lash out, I can't even imagine doing that. But there were some guys in, in Ephesus who apparently were just ticking Timothy off. And Paul says, don't lash out, don't strike out. On the other hand, he said back in chapter 4, verse 12, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Last Friday night at Connect, we talked about how you do that, how you establish respect when you're younger in faith. How do you establish respect, especially with seasoned saints? And you don't do it by fighting for it. The way you establish respect, you don't demand it, you demonstrate it. You, you show it in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And by the way, that teaching is online. We, we did that on Friday night and talked through some things that we didn't cover in here. But the best way to be respected is to be respectable. The best way to be listened to is to listen. And especially with an older person than yourself, who I believe deserves a little respect... So note this, in relating to the fellowship, older men are to be respected. Proverbs 16.31 says, a gray head is a crown of glory. I believe that more every day. (laughs) It is found in the way of righteousness. A gray head is a crown of glory. What younger believers can sometimes miss is that their older counterparts have gone through most of what they are now going through. When we're young, we don't want to believe that. When we're young, we want to think we're the first ones going through this. We're the first to experience it. And we're the first to innovate new ideas. And we look at older people, when we're young, we look at older people and say, ah, they just don't get it. They're just not sharp enough like we are to understand this new technology. Clearly, they don't understand the new iPhone 8. Solomon wouldn't have. Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. And I can just see someone holding up all of our technologies to Solomon. Well, this is new. This is new. Here, here's the truth. The truth is that things take new shapes and different forms, but really nothing is new. Just new ways of doing things, but it's the same old thing that's always been done. And when we get a little bit older, we're not daughters 
Just because we don't want to learn the newest iteration of technology. See, that's the reality, and that's something else young people don't understand. We get to a certain age, and we're just done. (laughs) Hey, there's a new upgrade for Microsoft Word. I don't care. I like the old one. Hey, there's a brand new TV that just came out. You can burp, and it changes the channels. I don't want that. (laughs) What do I need these things for? All the new inventions, and, and, and you know, and of course, young people, they're right with it because they're into it and they got it and they're right on the edge and they love that, you know, craziness. And I'm sitting here going, no thanks. I'm done. I was done about 10 years ago. <laughs> Jeremiah 6, 16, with all seriousness says, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. We would rather have the newest and the latest and the best. Hey, guess what? Jesus isn't new. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus Christ who is unchanging. I find so much comfort in that. But the point is that that Paul is making to Timothy is the older men, they're to be respected. And the way you relate with them is not trying to force them to do what you do or to be what you are, but to respect what they know, what they understand, what they've gone through. And I learned more about how to pastor like Jesus from a 70-year-old senior pastor named Floyd Strader. I was so blessed. My last five years of full-time youth ministry were under Floyd Strader. He was 69 when I was hired, 74 when he retired. And I am so thankful for those years. I think I've told you before, I still tap into some of the things that I learned from him. Watching him, listening to him, sitting in his office, having him explain things to me. He had a voice allergy, so when he talked, it was kind of like this. and you, you know, It was like a bad connection on a cell phone, really. And I loved... I loved Floyd. And he taught me so much. In fact, I learned more from him than from all the young bucks, seminarians, and circuit speakers that I've ever put, ever heard all put together. So, older men, man, show them respect. They are to be respected. And in this same group of people relating to the fellowship at large, he then says, and to the younger men as brothers. So while the older men are to be respected, the younger men are to be elevated. Don't look down on them, Timothy, if they're younger than you. No, elevate them as brothers. This runs counter to human nature. Our tendency is if someone's younger or less experienced or less mature than ourselves, is to look down the nose at them. And to consider, well, you know, eventually, someday, perhaps, they'll come along and get to where we are. To condescend. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. That's not my family, Jesus would say. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And he showed us because Jesus descended, he never condescended. And He elevates us even to be like siblings. One of the most remarkable realities of Scripture is that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. Jesus does. God does that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, He is not ashamed to call them brethren. 
saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. The Hebrew writer draws that right out of the Psalm of the Cross, Psalm 22. And quotes literally Jesus out of Psalm 22 saying, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Younger men are to be elevated as siblings. And I love that. And I see a beautiful example of that in my own family with my oldest son, Corey. Corey is seven years older than Hayden. And when Hayden was a little boy growing up, Corey always had those seven years on him. And yet he never treated Hayden like a little kid. It was absolutely remarkable to me as as a big brother. Corey just never condescended. I, I, I remember vividly him sitting on the couch playing games with Hayden and treating him like his equal. You know why I remember it vividly? Because Corey's now 27 and he does the same thing with my 10-year-old David. It's remarkable to me. I have learned how not to condescend to my own children by watching my oldest son. And it's such a blessing in my home. Elevate younger men as brothers, as siblings. Bring them along. And then he says, the older women... As mothers, so older men are to be respected, younger men are to be elevated, older women are to be honored, which is good and right for a young pastor. Young Pastor Tim, man, you need to accept some mothering from the older women, and if you do that, you'll be blessed for it. They'll cook for you, (laughs) they'll encourage you, they'll love you. It's, It's a beautiful thing when the older women are not cast aside and ignored as irrelevant. And older sisters hear me, you are not. Older brothers hear me, you are not irrelevant. Not in the least. The oldest among us I consider to have the greatest wisdom. And it makes all the difference in this church fellowship. I was so thankful when when the bridge first began. I was so thankful that we weren't just like this young, edgy church but that we were just across the board. We had young people coming, we had older people coming, and we had everybody in between. And the one thing that I could, I could blame it on was the Spirit of God was there. Because you, you see, the Holy Spirit loves younger people. And the Holy Spirit loves older people. It's family. And so we do what family does. We respect the older men. We elevate the younger men. We honor the older women. Hey, didn't Jesus? How did He treat them? How did he treat his own mother? I think that's one of the most beautiful examples from the cross. We hear deep respect coming out of the mouth of Jesus who could have been thinking about a million other things, concerned about a million other things, and yet one of the key things that is recorded in Scripture that Jesus said was, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. Jesus looked down and he saw Mary there. And in one of his final statements wanted to make sure that his earthly mother was cared for. Woman, look at John. John, she's your mom now. You take care of her. You look out for her. And older women ought to be cared for in such a way. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. So the older men ought to be respected, younger men elevated, older women honored, and the younger women treat them as sisters. In all purity. Note that. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. Family. Younger women are to be, let's just say, protected. Protected. 
Now, remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, very likely an unmarried young pastor. And so it makes sense that he would say to him, and treat the younger women as sisters in all purity, and you can see Timothy going, Ah, alright, okay, Paul. I'm kidding. Treat them, treat them with protection. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says to Timothy, Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And by the way, there's a clue here that Timothy could pick up on, and any young man can, and that is the more you treat young women like sisters, the more they will be attracted to you. I have found this to be true, or found this to be true at least with my wife, not since then. (laughs) Treading through some dangerous waters. That was close, wasn't it? No, treat them as sisters. Treat them with love, respect, purity. Treat young unmarried women, and I'm talking to unmarried guys right now, treat them as someone else's future wife. It's the best way to do it. Protect them. And it's wise for any man, married or not, to treat younger women as sisters to be protected and cared for with purity. So older men respected, younger men elevated, older women honored, younger women protected, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. That is how a healthy family functions. And in these just few verses, he's already laid that out for the whole fellowship. That applies to all of us. But then he goes on to the next section, the next group of people, and it is recognizing widows. Relating to the family, now recognizing widows, but it's widows indeed and widows in need. Watch this, verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they, that is the children and grandchildren, must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. This is really interesting to me, but the standard here, the biblical standard for the church in caring for a widow is family first. Family first. So that's the first go-to, is is the family of the woman who has been widowed. That is the children, that is any extended family around. That's where care is required, first and foremost, according to the Lord and according to the Scriptures, Verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Paul could say, and Timothy, you, you have that example. Now we don't know about his own mother. We don't really know much about Timothy's father. We know that uh, he was Greek and his mother was Jewish. But... 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. So we don't know the exact family dynamic, but my sense is that Grandma Lois was a widow and in the house raising up Timothy along with his mother. That these two were pouring faith into this young man. That Grandma Lois was one of the gentle hands that actually raised Timothy. And in verse 6 he says, But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. The widow can be a victor or a victim. 
She can think of herself as a conqueror in Christ or a casualty, but it all comes back to her first source of trust. Is it Christ-centered or is it flesh-centered? Now, this section of Scripture is pretty remarkable to me because there's a certain tenderness that ought to be here anytime we read about this or or go through this section. And, And in it, yet Paul doesn't shy away from truth. He's talking about widows and he's raising the question, do they have a a Christ-centered faith or are they flesh-centered? He actually uses the phrase here, wanton pleasure. See, I wouldn't write this stuff. This is why I'm so thankful for Scripture. Because I would never think to write, I would just avoid these things. Paul just goes right for it. Inspired by the Spirit of God. And he makes this comment, verse 6, She who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Wanton pleasure is spatalao. <laughs> and it means self-indulgence. And it's used in just one other place. James chapter 5, verse 5, You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now this use of this word, it, it, it's, it's a little stark. Especially when you're trying to speak tenderly about how Timothy is to relate to the widows. And apparently there's a group of widows at Ephesus. Remember, this is very practical. And Paul is writing to Timothy about things that are going on in that particular church that Timothy is pastoring. So he's got to deal with this group of widows. And yet, Paul is calling out those who are of wanton pleasure. The Spatalao group. And he says, deal with them. What we're talking about here I you know I, I read that and I went Paul show a little sensitivity man and yet yet I think he is because this entire section on widows is not an out of touch out of the blue church manual or policy statement on how to handle the widows it's not what he's writing Again, Paul is dealing with real-life situations in Ephesus. And apparently there are some problems there among the widows. And more on that in just a minute. But Paul returns now to those uh, who are in position to care for their own household, which includes extended family. Note this in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. The first time I read that, I thought, I've got to get some retirement. Dude, I need some life insurance or something because <laughs> I, got, I got something to do here. I got to care for my household. And, and you can make that extension. But this is in the context of widows. And so what specifically Paul is saying here, and it's one of the strongest statements of exhortation in this letter, if not in all of the New Testament. But the statement is this, care for a widow must be family first. That if you have a mother who lost, and and you lost your father, guess whose responsibility it is to care for her? Yours. It's not the church's, it's not the state's, It's not the federal government. It is your responsibility. And in our country, we have lost touch with the responsibility of children to their parents when they're older. 
We have slid into this place where we just kind of figure, well, they got their own savings and retirement. We'll just let that take care of them. We have a responsibility to them as well. The first responder to a widow's need is her own children. They're the ones who ought to be there. And that is the context of this verse, caring for widowed or aging parents. My parents, my responsibility. Your parents, your responsibility. And to shirk that, Paul says, is to deny the faith. Why do you think Paul's words are so strong on this? I think it's because this is one issue that really fired up Jesus. Listen to this. Mark chapter 7. Verse 9, he is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, you are experts. And they, at that point, are looking around at each other going, yeah, that's right, we are. And he says, you are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother... And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban. That was a word they developed, korban. It means given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Jesus gets after them. He says, you are violating the law. Because you've come up with this loophole of calling whatever you have, I'm giving this to God. And consequently, these Pharisees, in giving it to God, just got it right back themselves. And didn't have to then spend their hard-earned money on mom or dad. On caring for aging parents. And Jesus would have nothing to do with it. They were invalidating the law. How's that? Well, the law says, Exodus 22.22, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. That's in the imperative. We know in Psalm 68 verse 5 we get a sense of why God would say that because a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in His holy habitation. That if there's anyone on the planet that God is most sensitive to and aware of, it's widows and orphans. It is those who might not be able to defend themselves. In James 1.27, the Bible says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. God cares deeply when it comes to helplessness and defenselessness, when there is no family care, and so when there's no family care, the church must step in. Now, this is not the first time that that the believers, that the church had faced such a crisis. You may recall the story back in Acts chapter 6. Verse 1 says, At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic, that is the Greek Jews, against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. No, that couldn't happen in a church. Yes, it can. And it did. And the flesh was just as alive in the church of the first century as it is in the church of 2017. And so there were widows being overlooked because of racial differences, if you will. Cultural differences. The Hellenistic widows overlooked. It's amazing to me that that even took place. The issue was neglect. They were being neglected. 
And it is always the neglected, it is always the disregarded that matter most to the Lord. You know, from time to time I have to stop because we get rolling in ministry. And what we think is important and what we deem the church to be about ministry. We're doing ministry. Well, there was a widow who needed some wood brought over for her wood burning. So, yeah, we're doing ministry. We're too busy over here. The most important people in any given church fellowship are those of greatest need. Those who are most easily overlooked are the ones God is looking right at. And I pause here just to say, in fact, i got to pray. Let's pray this. Father, would you make us sensitive to the most needy and the most neglected right here in this fellowship? Would you give us eyes for each other, eyes of love and hearts of compassion? Because I don't believe, Father, that anybody here, myself included, that we mean to look over people. Or, or step over people in their heartache or in their loneliness or in their neglect. Father, I just pray that you will bring to our attention those who need our attention. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are biblical standards when it comes to caring for widows. An actual, how do you get on the widow's list? They have one. A widow's registry, and Paul said, Timothy, I I have some things I want you to think through here. For when the church steps in, so that the church doesn't step in it. Verse 9. Thank you. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, which literally is being a one-man woman. So remember before, the elder had to be a one-woman man? Well, this is a one-man woman. So the indication is faithful. She was faithful to her husband before. So having been a a one-man woman, having, verse 10, a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, and if she has shown hospitality to strangers, and if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. (laughs) Wait a minute. We just got done praying for people who are feeling neglected and, and needy, and now you're telling me they have a list of standards they have to meet just for us to put us on the put them on the widow's list? That just doesn't seem right. Listen, Paul is not saying that this person, that this particular widow or, or widows have to earn the right to be cared for. What Paul is saying is she already has. She's already done this. This is already the character, the nature of who she is. In fact, what Paul's describing here is very much the Proverbs 31 woman. Which you can read all of Proverbs 31. It's it's wonderful. But verse 26 says, She opens her mouth in wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. That was the verse at my grandmother Irene's funeral. Her children rise up and call her blessed. See, my my grandmother Irene lost my grandfather to cancer when she was my age. She was 53 years old. She lived to the age of 94. 40 years she lived as what we would consider a widow. She never married again. She never loved my grandfather less. A single day 
But she loved God more and more. And her hope was fixed on the Lord, not on men. And that's what Paul is describing is is that character. And there's a reason for this. He gives three qualities, in essence, that matter here. That she needs to be 60 or older. That she needs to be faithful in character. And she needs to be godly. Now you might say, well that sounds generic, but it says here that she has to have brought up children. It doesn't say they have to be her children. The indication is this is a woman who, who has served from the heart. This is not about, listen, it's not about what she can now do for the church. It's about how she has lived in the Lord. And Paul says if you're going to put a woman on the widow's list to be cared for by the church, look at how she lived her life. Did she live for the Lord? Was she that type of person? And you might still say, why does that matter? It matters. Because if this is her pattern, then she will continue in it. Why does she have to continue in it? Listen, this is so important to get. It's again, not because she owes the church a return, but that she reflects upon the Lord. I'm going to give give you a little hint of where we're going here. This all has to do with the Lord. That how we relate to one another, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. How we care for and look after widows and how widows themselves are cared for in a church fellowship. It doesn't have to do as much with us or with them. It has to do everything with Him. And if you're going to put a woman on this widow's registry, she will reflect upon the Lord. And that's more important than anything else. So Paul says she needs to fit this kind of character trait. And if she does, if she belongs to Him, if she reflects well on the Lord, sign her up. Because ultimately the church is not a social service organization. It is an organization of worshipers of God. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. That's why, by the way, we're careful when it comes to missions. We want to know who the missionaries are, what they're doing, what is their character. We want to know if we're going to be involved with them financially, that they reflect well on Jesus. It doesn't matter for us, but if we're going to be involved in this, if the church is going to be engaged, everything we do ultimately has to come back to the worship of God. So even putting the widow on the widow's registry... It will reflect on the Lord. So you're not going to put a widow who Paul described earlier with wanton pleasure, you're not going to put her on the widow's registry. Why? Because she will poorly reflect on not just the church, but on the Lord. And so these things matter. We are not a social service organization, I say again. We are worshipers of the, of the Lord. Now, a younger widow doesn't even fit the bill of care. A younger widow can't even get on the list. Verse 11 continues and says, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. Now, please just bear with me. Hang in there. For when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Whoa, whoa, what? What are you talking about, Paul? They want to get married, thus incurring condemnation? Oh, read on, it just gets better. 
At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Wow. My respect for Paul just goes up and up. This guy had guts. To write something like this. (laughs) Understand, first of all, clearly something is amiss in Ephesus. He is dealing with a situation in Ephesus. Some have already turned aside to Satan. And he's talking about widows. So there's a group here who's causing trouble. And Paul is addressing this through Timothy. Here's how you got to handle this situation. So know that. But we still have to deal with the reality that God had this written down in Scripture to be handed down through all the centuries to right now. And as I've said before, it is as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. So get this. The Spirit knows human nature. Which is why Paul used the phrase earlier, wanton pleasure or self-indulgence, up in verse 6. The undercurrent here of, of sensual desires as he describes, of idleness, of gossip, and of meddling can be linked to, and there's no nice way to say this, preloading. If you just take care of all their needs so they don't have to work or do anything, they're just just picking up their check every Friday, then they are free to indulge in whatever they want. And apparently, now I'm going to read into it a little bit, but it's entirely likely that there were already a group of widows that were being taken care of by the church in Ephesus, and they were running roughshod on the name of God in the town. Picking up their check and partying it up all week long. And so Paul says, that's not going to happen. They don't get to be on the registry. Especially if they're younger than 60, they're old enough, they can get a job. Or they can marry again and have children and, and work in the kitchen and do all the things that women should do. No, I didn't just say that. <laughs> just, just kidding. Cultural issues coming up all over the place. Paul is warning against heresies. Remember that. So this is another area where there are some sin issues cropping up right in the church. But you might say, okay, I get that, but what about this condemnation issue in verse 12? That they, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. I thought it was marriage until death do us part. I thought that Paul said, and he did in 1 Corinthians 7, that when a woman, when a woman is widowed, that she's free to marry again. And when a man is widowed, that he is free to marry again. That death is the one thing that then breaks that covenant lawfully and then you can go on and, and marry again. So, so what in the world is he talking about? They want to get married, thus incurring condemnation. Listen carefully. Paul is not saying that the desire to remarry is condemning. Nor would he. Because he's the one who, just a few verses down, says, therefore I want younger mar- widows to get married. So either he's in complete ridiculous contradiction of himself, or he's talking about something else here when he says, listen again, they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ and they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Previous pledge is not her marriage vow to her previous husband. Previous pledge is literally faith. Verse 11, he says, it's sensual disregard of 
Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? It means that faith in Jesus is being set aside for sensual desire. The pledge that she made to Jesus is being run over by sensual desire. And that is what condemns, not the desire to remarry, but the running wild. Now that she's widowed, that is condemning. That will that would condemn anybody, wouldn't it? To reject Jesus in favor of the flesh? And again, I believe this is what's going on in Ephesus, which is why Paul has to address it. But here is the prescription, and ladies, again, bear with me on this one. The prescription is marriage, children, and housekeeping. And that is not sexist. It's very much in keeping with an earlier appeal of Paul. Which is what? 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, For all of us, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That there are things that in each of our lives that we can get into and, and do and be about that will keep us focused on godliness and take us away from the kind of wanton pleasure that Paul is warning against. And, and ladies, you have to deal with this between you and the Lord, but when he mentions such things as, as raising kids and keeping house and being married as prescriptions against heretical living... I think maybe the Spirit is on to something there. Well, can't a a single woman be a follower of Jesus? Absolutely. Can a single widow be? Absolutely. No question. But remember one more time, and this is where we lose it all the time as human beings. God, more than the widow, is the issue. The glory of Jesus is what matters, not your right to do whatever you think you should be able to do. Trust me, there are lots of things in my life that my flesh wants to do, but I know I just can't do. Why not, Rick? Because it would dishonor God. Things I could even think I could get away with, although your sin will find you out. But the question is, am I living a life not that pleases me, but that pleases Him? Am I living a life that honors Him, that glorifies Jesus, and not myself? Verse 16, so he says, If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. I love that, that Paul is saying, look, the church should be about assisting people, but God also gave us our immediate families, and that's where it starts. That's where the care has to happen. So there's a double instruction here. Part of the instruction that Paul is giving is, you need to tell your families to take care of each other. You need to tell mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and children, take care of each other. You were made a family to care for your family, so do so. And the church, you look out for those who really need it. And you be alerted to and aware of those who desperately need to be covered. Why in verse 16 does he say, a woman, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them? A couple of possibilities. Now, if you're reading, reading a King James Version, it says, if any woman and or man has a widow, but that's not what the original language says. It says, if any woman has a widow. And two things to note about that. One, it's a purity issue. A man shouldn't be taking care of a widow anyway. A woman should. 
So if you have a husband and wife caring for his mother or her mother, that's that's fine. But even in that case, the, the connection, the care is going to be more woman to woman, which Paul will talk about in Titus chapter 2. So there's a purity issue there and just an appropriateness issue, but also there is probably a very specific local issue going on that there was a woman, perhaps a wealthy woman in Ephesus who was caring for a group of widows. And so Paul's making an exception saying, hey, she can continue to do that. If she has the provision and she's able to do that, then she should. And then the church doesn't have to worry about them. The church can then carry for these over here who really need to be cared for. Widows in deed, but also widows in need. So relating to the fellowship, recognizing widows, and now Paul turns Timothy's attention to the third group. And I would call this a responsibility toward elders. Not a responsibility of elders. This is different. This is now young Timothy's responsibility to those who he will set as elders in Ephesus. And I think we can stretch this out a little bit to our responsibility to church leaders ourselves. So here we go. Verse 17. Elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Let me just read that one more time. Listen, remember this, that a pastor is a bishop, is an elder. That poimanos, episkopos, and presbyteros are all synonymous for one role of leadership in the church, and the church has a responsibility toward them. And so Paul is telling Timothy, listen, there are those who are ruling, rules, uh, uh, you know, leading. They're in Ephesus, and they're worthy of a double honor, especially if they work hard at preaching and teaching. Why? Because there is a, a, a huge focus on the Word of God in the church. That is vitally important. And so the first responsibility here to a shepherd, to an elder, is the benefit, and I'm going to give you four benefits real quickly, the benefit of salaried support. So right here Paul very clearly shows that salaried pastors, that, that's... Acceptable, And he's telling Timothy, do that there at Ephesus. There are some at Ephesus who ought to be salaried, Timothy. Note this, he says in verse 18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. If you call me an ox... Yeah, we pay the dumb ox. And the laborer is worthy of his wages straight out of the scriptures. That there is a benefit of salaried support. The word honor, where he says, worthy of a double honor. He's already said that widows are worthy of honor. Now he's saying that the pastor, the teaching pastor, is worthy of a double honor. That word honor is tome, and it's literally translated price, value, or sum. So he's talking about financial, uh, financial pay. Why should a pastor be paid? Again, because God, not pastors, God puts the highest premium on preaching and teaching. In the first year that we were a fellowship, I I remember this, and and it impacted my, my study. But I remember Leslie Freeman one time saying, you study the Word of God and can bring it to us and teach us for the rest of us who don't have the time to do what you have the time to do. And I thought, oh, okay. Fair enough. 
You know, you have people with all kinds of roles and jobs, everything from, from homemakers to workers to the factory to whatever, and, and there isn't time enough in the day. Everyone, you're here tonight, aren't you? Because you long to have eight or ten hours just to be in the Word. But you can't. So where can you get that kind of study? You can come here. And so it becomes my responsibility then to make sure I put that time in so that you fairly receive the teaching of the Word that you hunger for and that I hunger for as well. And so it is legitimate that God puts a high premium on the teaching of the Word. I think, my opinion, that pastors who spend very little time in study probably ought to be paid that much. (laughs) said that out loud, but let's just move right on. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. How could they do that? Because Peter said in Acts chapter 6 verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So you can be devoted to the apostles' teaching and Peter says and we as apostles we will be devoted to the study of the word. And that's how it works. But the second responsibility, that is two leaders, is also vitally important. The benefit of salaried support, but also, how about the benefit of the doubt? Verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. And witness, by definition, is someone who saw it happen. So we don't base things on hearsay. We don't listen to hearsay. As opposed to ear witness, ear witness is hearsay. All right, it's eyewitness. This has been seen. This is straight out of Jewish law. We do not accept anything except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, Deuteronomy 19, verse 5. And so Paul says, do not entertain slander against a shepherd. Don't listen to it. You see, the devil knows the best way to take down a church is to divide its leaders. Please understand, as we talk about leaders here, anytime we talk about leaders, we're not talking about those who are up here sitting on the high board and overseeing the rest of y'all down here. That is such a misnomer and is such a misunderstanding of what true church leadership is. If anyone would be great among you, Jesus said, he must be the one who serves. And so those who are serving in what we call leadership, those who are serving as elders, do not give ear to gossip or slander about them. It is satanic. It's wrong. Don't accept slander. Don't accept accusations against pastors or church leaders. And I would add, by the way, don't entertain slander against local pastors of other churches either. It's amazing to me how that goes around. Not here. I don't hear this from y'all because you're perfect. But it amazes me. I actually don't hear this kind of thing around here and I'm so thankful for it. But it does amaze me how in small communities like Oak Harbor and Anacortes, how things just fly around about, did you hear about this pastor and what happened with him? Did you hear about this pastor and what happened with him? What does that have to do with me other than he's a brother in Christ and I should care about him? Why are you telling me this? It's almost like we we get a sick thrill when that church over there is going down because maybe we'll get some of their members. And, And I know even saying that out loud, you go, oh, that's awful. But hey, it happens all the time. And it's all about the flesh. 
And it happens because people give ear again to gossip. Proverbs 26.20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Here's the point about gossip. I would say worse than the gossiper is the listener to gossip. Because if there is no listener, gossip goes nowhere. If someone starts to talk to you about something else and you say, I'm sorry, I can't hear that, and you walk away, strife can't spread. Slander has no wood to burn hotter. And if we're talking about eyewitnesses to either sin or some kind of lack of integrity, well then that's different. If you have seen something or experienced something with a leader, something's gone awry, and you have eyewitness testimony to this, then what's your first responsibility? Do you know? Go to the person. You go to that person directly. I saw this happen. I am not here to condemn you, but I'm here as a brother or sister in Christ to restore you. You know, what does Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 tell us? And those of you who are spiritual, restore such a one. If anyone's caught in a trespass, restore. So that's, that's the first line of defense against gossip and slander, is if you're eyewitness to a sin of one of the leaders, and that's what we're talking about specifically, go to them. Talk to them. See if that can be worked out, and if forgiveness can happen, and restoration right there, and then you're done. Now, if they won't listen, Jesus said, Matthew 18, then you go get another witness. That is someone else who has witnessed what took place. And then the two of you go and talk to this person. I'm not pointing to you, Glenn. We're good. Yeah. I'm actually pointing at less. Yeah. And the two of you go. And if they won't listen, then he says, then you tell it to the church. But even in that situation, the telling it to the church doesn't mean we come up here on Sunday morning and start pointing people out and calling down their sin. Now, if you read a little further, you might think that's what Paul's saying. It's not. But if there is sin or if there's a lack of integrity, hey, it's going to come to light. And you deal with it directly and personally. But verse 20, he does then say, those who continue in sin, talking about leaders, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. Oy vey. All right, let's do it. I got my list of all the shepherds who are messing up. Listen, this is what I call the benefit of brotherhood. And I believe strongly in this. There's a benefit of salaried support. Here there's a benefit of the doubt that we give leaders, trusting that God really does know what's going on, and He's going to call out if there's sin to be called out. But thirdly is the benefit of brotherhood. This is not about, verse 20, has been misused. It is not about calling out people's sin in front of the entire fellowship. What it's about is strict accountability among the shepherds. So what happens? Let's let's use Glenn as an example. What happened if Glenn is caught in a trespass? Well, first of all, the person who catches him should seek to restore. But he's not listening, and it's, and it's continuing. And so we're into verse 20, those who continue in sin. He's continuing in this trespass, so what do we do? Well, according to Paul, we rebuke him in the presence of all. In all the church? No, all the shepherds. And that's where I would deal with that. And by the way, we have a special meeting tonight after service. Then. Just, 
But you deal with it with the shepherds. Why? Because if you maintain, and I absolutely believe this, if you maintain the unity of the leadership, you maintain the unity of the church. But you start tearing apart and breaking down the leaders, and the church is in trouble every time. So yeah, you do deal with sin among the brothers, and there's a benefit there among the shepherds. It's not a good old boys club, don't get me wrong. But there's a benefit among the leaders themselves to deal with and to correct And by the way, and I've told our shepherds this, I expect that. I expect from time to time to take correction. And it may just be correction on teaching. Rick, you said this. Actually, here's here's the deal. That correction should happen. But it should happen with care. Pastors, elders, and overseers understand this. They bear two great weights. Two great weights. They have a responsibility on their hearts. And they have a target on their backs. The responsibility is for the fellowship to truly serve. The target on their back is from Satan. The moment someone steps in a leadership position, because if Satan can take down one leader, he can take down a church. Verse 21. Then I solemnly charge you, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and His chosen angels. Okay, it doesn't get a whole lot more solemn to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. In other words, from our fellowship to our leadership, the Word of God is our standard of accountability. Not my opinion, not anyone else's opinion, but we measure everything against what does God's Word say, and that is our standard. And he says in verse 22, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. This is what I would call the benefit of, number four, experience. The benefit of experience. That if someone's going to become a leader, that that person needs to be an experienced individual, which is why the word elder is used, presbyteros or presbyteros, because it implies experience. It implies a season of walking and being with the Lord. 1 Timothy 3.6 says, Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And so Paul repeats that now. Don't lay hands too quickly. And there are two aspects of that. One is that don't lay hands too quickly on a younger brother who needs time to mature in faith. But it's also, don't lay hands too quickly, Timothy, on someone you don't know. You need to know who it is that you're asking to be a shepherd. I've learned that one the hard way. (laughs) And so we are careful. I, I have two standards in my mind for any man called to be a shepherd at the bridge. It's knowing and showing. i got to know him, and he must have showed his calling over time as a natural shepherd among us. And when I see that, that's the kind of person that I go, hey, would you consider being one of the shepherds? Because they're already doing it. They show it, and I have a relationship with them, or I know them. As a pastor leader himself, so Timothy was to see to these things, the benefit of salary, benefit of the doubt, of accountable brotherhood, and of experience. Verse 23. No longer, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I mean, that's a left turn right there. What were you talking about? Again, Paul. This comes so, so out of the blue. 
All right, Timothy had tummy aches. We know that. He had a little tummy troubles. He had some issues. But why all of a sudden right here would Paul okay Timothy to take wine when he just indicated that elders should avoid it back in chapter 3? You know, do not be given to wine. Literally, do not be near wine. But now he says to Timothy, take a little wine. Okay, understand, it's not just so Timothy would stop whining. That's a hard one to avoid, Bill. I mean, you know, it's like Paul saying, Timothy, just quit your belly aching. Okay, here's the thing. It was medicinal. Take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. It's medicinal, not recreational. Don't you love all the marijuana signs? Medical marijuana! Yeah, I had a little headache this afternoon. A little headache, so I just I had a little medical marijuana. Come on. Come on. There's so much of that. You know what? I, I'm not going to get into the conversation of, well, it could, be, it could be a useful drug like anything else. Okay, fine. Then why are you rolling joints? You know? But... All medicine aside, it's a big sham. In our state, in Colorado, it's, it's a sham. It's just an easy way to sell pot. But this is medicinal. And Paul said, which is why he says, take a little. He doesn't say, you know, drink up, Tim. Take a little wine for your stomach. And it worked medicinally. And we have medicines now that we use that would do the same thing. So you don't have to take a little wine for your stomach if you have a tummy ache. There are other options out there for you. But there's a bigger question here. A much more serious question. Why doesn't Paul say pray for healing? Timothy, call the elders of the church, the guys that we were just talking about, call them. Have them come anoint you with oil. You're having tummy trouble? You need to be prayed over. Paul didn't say that. Take a little wine for medicine? Why does he do that? I grew up in a church that used this verse to teach that the power of the Holy Spirit was waning at this point. That by 62 AD, as Paul is writing to Timothy, clearly the power to heal was no longer functioning like it had earlier, and so therefore he had to tell him to take a little wine for his stomach. Proof right there, the Holy Spirit was ceasing to work in power with the apostles. They'll say... Paul prayed three times that God would take the thorn in his side away, and God didn't. Proof that healing was no longer available to the church. And that's just rubbish. Let me explain this to you. Do you believe when you pray for healing that Christ will bring it? Do you believe in it? I mean, Jackie's waving her hand back there. Thank you, sister. Do you believe it? Or do we as Christians skirt the issue by saying, Lord, we pray for miraculous healing, if it be thy will. We pray that you will do this, but in case you don't. I was telling Les today, I've come around the horn on this one. Because I was raised in a church that believed in cessationism, the ceasing of the tangible, actionable power of the Holy Spirit after the last of the apostles. Except in the Word of God. That was kind of what I was taught growing up. And I I started seeing way too much to believe that. I started seeing His moving and His power and His healing and have seen some remarkable healings take place. 
And I have seen God heal in ways that I did not expect at all. We still remain in in the church, and this has been this way 2,000 years, where people sit here and go, we saw this miraculous healing over here. By the way, Gary, can I mention him? So you know that Gary Riggs has been fighting cancer and was told that there was cancer all throughout his colon and he had a test just done yesterday. There's no cancer in his colon. It's gone. Yes. So, well, that's just... Come on! That is a supernatural, miraculous healing work of God. Well, so why then does Gary still have cancer in other places? Do I look like God? You're laughing too much here. A gentle shake of the head would be fine. Here's how I've come full circle on this thing. I used to not really believe that healing could take place, you know, beyond coincidence. And then I came to believe absolutely in healing and and began to believe, man, I've I've got to pray with faith and I've got to have the faith for healing to take place because I know God will do it, but I've I've got to have the faith. And now I've come back around to, hey, I absolutely expect God to heal when we pray for Him to heal. Well then, Rick, what do you do when He doesn't? I assume He knows what He's doing. And I have no problem with that. And that is not a cop-out. The question is not, when is God going to heal? The question is, how is God going to heal? And even that question is up to Him. Sometimes it's medicinally. In Timothy's case, he didn't need a radical healing. He just needed a little cup of wine and he'd be fine. Settle the stomach, Tim. By the way, you know what some people think? They think that Timothy's tummy troubles was because he was so high-strung. That actually has been put forward. And that makes some sense to me. Because remember, this young man was the go-to guy that Paul sent into trouble in Corinth. And trouble in other churches. Man, if there was church conflict, send Timothy. He's he's our head hunter. (laughs) He's the one who's going to fix this problem. So there's this sense that maybe Timothy wasn't a weakling after all. Maybe he was just, you know, type A. And I get this. You all don't know this. I'll just share this with you, but... It is amazing how many times, Cheryl will will back me up on this, I wake up Monday morning with a stomachache. All the time. No other day of the week, Monday morning. My stomach's unsettled. And I finally figured it out. It's because I get so hyper on Sundays. So whatever I eat on Sunday, I come out at two services and I am wired. Ask Cheryl, I'm just like, did you hear what we talked about this morning? Can I do it again? Let's go one more time. You know, and then I watch the Seahawks and they lose and I feel like, okay, kind of come down. Or they win. Did you see Sunday's game? I don't, some of you are not watching. Okay, that's your business, but it's... It was awesome. And I went to bed Sunday night just going, this has been a great day! And I woke up Sunday morning going, oh, Timmy troubles. So anyway, some people think that that's what's going on there. You know what? Here's the thing. Whether we use medicine, whether we pray for the skilled education of surgeons, or whether God does a miraculous supernatural work, or whether God takes somebody home 
Guess what? If you trust Him, it's His prerogative. I pray for healing. I pray for supernatural healing. I expect healing, but I trust God. Because the reality is, it is not faith that ultimately heals. Reject the notion... Please hear this. Reject the notion that you didn't have enough faith, therefore so-and-so wasn't healed. Not true. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can rock a mountain. It has Our faith is involved. God invites our faith. But it is not our faith that heals. It is God who heals. And we trust Him for it. And we come to Him for it. And we come believing, but sometimes our little bag of belief is just a tiny little thing. But we hand it to Him. And sometimes we pray like the father of the demon-possessed boy. I believe. Help my unbelief. Because I got that too. God heals. Exodus 15.26 He said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all of His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Jehovah Rapha. I'm the healer. The power to heal, the supernatural, that is, that is God's. And by the way, As long as we're talking about this, God is not a gamer. He is not toying with us. He is not playing with us. He's not like, ooh, do you have enough faith? Oh, sorry, not enough faith. (laughs) She had enough faith. He didn't have enough faith. That's not what God does. Does that sound like the nature and character of the God of love? No. He's not playing with us. But He will use whatever means necessary to accomplish His will because I remind you, ultimately, this family exists for Him and not for us. So whether it's natural or supernatural, medicinal, or a work of the Holy Spirit, hey, trust Him. Just trust Him for whatever the outcome. Well, Okay, great. But what if Timothy is criticized now for taking a little wine? Huh? What are you going to do with that? Well, that's easy. Verse 24. The sins of some men are quite evident. Going before them to judgment, and for other their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. If you live your life, Timothy, if we live our life, brothers and sisters, with godly integrity, it's going to be shown for what it is. Timothy, if you take a little wine for your stomach and someone badmouths you for it, don't worry about it. It is what it is. You live your life with godly integrity. If you live for sin, that's going to come out as well. Well, let's punch into chapter 6. Just two quick verses and we're done. The Spirit has talked about relating to the fellowship, young and old. Recognizing widows indeed and in need. Responsibility toward leaders, not of leaders, but toward elders and leaders. And number four, an interesting group in the church at Ephesus reaching out to slaves. Slaves. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. So if you are under the yoke as a slave, don't egg your master. Things what he's saying. Verse 2. Wow. Those who have the... <laughs> I said, if you're under the yoke, don't egg your master. 
I know, it was a little cracked. I'm sorry. Don't tell jokes like that until you can see the whites of their eyes, Les. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. So quickly, slaves are made up nearly half the empire of Rome. Indentured servants, slaves out of battle from other countries, but slavery was huge in Rome. We've already actually talked about this quite a bit. We looked at slavery in the Bible when we studied Philemon, when we studied Colossians uh, chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 6. So we already know there are slaves in Ephesus and many of them. But what's interesting, and verse 2 points this out, is when slave and master both come to Christ. Can you just imagine that? A slave and a master in Ephesus both get saved, so now slave and master are both showing up at church together. They're both believers. We know this happened because we know two of them, Philemon and Onesimus. One was a slave, one was a master, both are followers of Jesus. And history tells us that in some churches in the early church, A slave was actually an elder and his master was in the fellowship. How does that work? Paul said this is how it works. If your master is a believer, you serve them all the more. You do even more because now you are blessing the beloved. Now you are caring for someone else who is a brother. I would love to see it. An elder slave and his master is a deacon. Confusing. But the truth is, relationships in the church always have a way of transcending social norms. Think about this, church family. Relationships in the church are different than anywhere else in the world. It's only in the church where a leader is a servant. It's only in the church where we're all trying to outdo one another and showing brotherly affection. It's only in the church where we're all saying, hey, I, I want to be a slave to you. I'm here to serve you. I care about you. I'm going to put you first. The church is completely different and doesn't bear out cultural roles. And Paul says, again, if, you, if you're a master, or think about this, if your boss is a believer, don't take advantage of that. Work harder to bless your boss because, again, you are benefiting a fellow follower of Jesus. But here is the crux of the whole matter. In fact, it's the heart of everything we've looked at tonight. And it's verse 1. Listen again. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. And so whether it's in the generic fellowship... Older saints, younger saints, whether we're talking about widows, whether we're dealing with with church leaders, or even talking about slaves or hirelings to bosses in the boss and, and employee relationship, the name of God must be lifted up and praised. The name of God is the point, is what matters above all other things. And the question I leave you with tonight is simply, how do our relationships... Fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, widows, leaders, bosses, workers. How do our relationships reflect His nature and glorify His name? Some said to Him, 
Behold, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking someone to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Father, thank you for making us a family. Thank you for the way you knit us together. For the oneness that we share. For brotherhood and sisterhood. And Father, I pray that our relationships would glorify You first and foremost. And I pray that perhaps a new reality would descend on us here at the Bridge Fellowship, or at least a new understanding of an old reality, an ancient reality. And that is that we exist in relationship with one another to praise You and to glorify and honor You, to exalt You in our treatment of one another. And I pray, Father, that our friends and our families and our neighbors would look at us and how we love this fellowship and love each other and they would see Your glory. Lord Jesus, be praised. Even in our simple relationships, in Jesus' name, Amen.